You know, this uh, series, Gentle and Lowly, has really been kind of following the book, but more than that, it's been it's been chunking, kind of chunking the chapters in the book together as they're done in the study guide. And sometimes this is not very difficult. Uh, sometimes it's like Sophie's choice. It's like, which one am I going to, you know, sacrifice? Uh, and, and this week, especially, that has been true is chapter 10 in this book is about the beauty, the allure of Christ. It's so important for us uh, to understand Another uh, chapter 11 then is about the, the emotional life of Christ, which in case you didn't know it, he had one. And uh, it kind of chronicles his emotional life and it's very illuminating uh, and how that relates to us. Chapter 12 um, is on the friendship of Christ. And this is the one that as I read this resonated most with me and so the choice was made we are going to be looking at the friendship of Christ um, today but I would encourage you to go back and read chapters 10 and 11. Um, I could do all three but it would be about a two-hour sermon and as my father used to say the mind can only engage what the seat can endure so um, he, you know he also he had little sayings about everything little aphorisms and um, he never called it being paddled and when I was growing up you you got paddled he, he would refer to it not as being paddled, but applying the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge, <laughs> which is a bit too euphemistic for how it actually felt. This series is rooted in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, the passage in which Jesus describes himself as being gentle and lowly of heart. But this follows another descriptor of Jesus, pejoratively given, by some religious leaders just a few verses before in Matthew eleven nineteen, where he's called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in case you were wondering, that's us. Doubly so, I guess, if you work for the IRS because you are both a tax collector and a sinner. <laughs> Bummer. But what does it mean? that Jesus Christ is a friend to you, that you are his. It means, among other things, that he's always glad to be with you, even and maybe most especially in your darkest moments. He will never shut you out. It means a fierce and unbreakable attachment, that he's steadfast, in his love for you. It means he wants to hone your character by reminding you of your identity and being willing to speak hard but helpful truth to you. You know, Jesus is the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. He's beautiful and majestic. He's transcendent and sublime. He, he's our savior, our intercessor, and our advocate. So he deserves our worship. And that's why we gather here every Sunday to crown him with many crowns, as we sang this morning, which is probably the first time you used the words potentate and ineffable today. We gather to crown him for his unassailable, regal magnificence. 
there's a bit of paradox here. Because while he deserves our worship, he also desires our friendship. And when we open ourselves to him, we discover a perfect friend, a friend of all friends, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was meant as both an insult and an indictment. And, and yet, for those who are actually sinners, this is a comforting and very powerful idea. For us that know ourselves, that know what we're made of, we hear this accusation and we have to say, thanks be to God. It's amazing that he's a friend of sinners. Because no surprise to anyone who knows me, I am one. He doesn't want us only to call him Lord. He doesn't want us only to call him Savior. Those are true, and he does want those things. But he also wants, he desires our friendship. He wants to be our friend. I hope as we've progressed in this study, you've been able to see how Jesus' gentle and lowly heart is woven all throughout the New Testament, but also that it flows right out of the Old Testament as well. And today I'm going to do a, just a brief survey of four Old Testament scriptures, four attributes of true friendship. And hopefully you'll see that Jesus perfectly fulfills and models every single quality of a good and true and godly friend. And not coincidentally, as I started studying them this week, not I was amazed to, to find that these attributes actually match the four nutrients of healthy relational soil that we learned about in, in reading and discussing the other half of church last fall and are experiencing now in our Joy Together Sundays. Joy, hesed, which I will explain to you. Group identity, which we're going to give focus to next Sunday as Steve and Rebecca lead us. And healthy correction. Though I've got time only to touch briefly on each one of them. And here's the first attribute. A true friend builds our joy and theirs by being face-to-face -face with us. I'm so drawn to a verse in Exodus 33 where God describes his relationship with Moses as he was empowering him as his representative to the people of Israel. In Exodus 33:11, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. I love this because in the Old Testament, there was no mediator as Jesus is for us. And so you, you couldn't simply come on your own with confidence into the presence of God because of your sin and his holiness. And if you tried, you were quite literally toast. God had these precautions and boundaries so humans couldn't come face to face with him because we couldn't handle that. And yet, when it describes the relationship that God has with Moses, it says he used to speak to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
face to face. I think this phrase is hugely significant in light of what we're learning about brain science and the joy that's built from being with someone who's glad to be with you. In the other half of church, neurotheologian Jim Wilder defines relational joy, as some of most of us probably know, as someone who's glad to be with me. It's, it's being the sparkle in someone's eye. It's what you feel when you see the sparkle in someone's eye that conveys, I'm happy to be with you. Here's why. God designed our brains to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. In fact, our brains desire joy more than any other thing. When Steve and I pronounce the blessing at the end of our services, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you. What does countenance mean? Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, it's someone's face. It's the expression that they have toward you. His face shining, his, his, the light of his, his faith, facial expression lifted upon you. That's the neurological definition of joy. Now, I have to, I have to quote Henry for just a moment. Um, Henry, is Henry two? Or, he's two. A keen observer of things and articulates what's going on pretty well. He, it, hence the monikers, Hair Steve and Head Steve. But he said one day, the Steves love to bless me. How do you think he knows that? It's written all over our faces. Our faces are telling him. I'm glad to be with you. May you also feel the joy of God's face shining on you because he's glad to be with you too. Don't ever forget that. Something's happening in his brain that is connecting things. It's just kind of an amazing thing. But listen, Jesus loves to be with you. He loves partnering with you. It brings him and us joy. He created us so that our brain looks specifically to the face of another to find joy because this opens up our relational circuits and fills up our emotional tank. Joy is primarily transmitted through the face and especially the eyes, which we have practiced together. Uh, we did this the last time in our, in our Joy Together Sunday. Joy is relational. It's what we feel when we're with someone who's glad to be with us. Joy does not exist, in fact, outside of relationship. And because Jesus is today to fully human, just as he is fully God, joy is as vitally important to him as it is to us. Face to face. God was glad to be with Moses. How do we know? He spoke to him, what? Face to face. How? As a friend does. And after one of those close encounters with God on Mount Sinai, 
Moses' joy was so profound that it left an imprint on him in the form of literally glowing with radiance. He had to cover his face. Do you know that feeling, even, even if only fractionally? Have you felt that radiance, that joy of someone who's just glad to be with you? One thing I love about the Bible is that it's, it's God's primary means, not his only means, but his primary means of communicating with us uh, through his word, through a written page. And so there's, there's that aspect of communication and relationship. But Jesus doesn't just stay in heaven or at a distance or on, on the printed word. No, he comes to us and he lives with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's intimacy of relationship that's personal. It doesn't just come through pages, but he comes near, he comes alongside, he comes face to face with us. That's what a friend does. A second attribute of true friendship is this. A true friend persists. To put it in biblical language, a true friend is steadfast. A friend, it says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. Hence my giggling up here during the prayer. A true friend builds strong, enduring attachments. A true friend sticks by your side. Do you have a friend like that? If so, you are incredibly blessed. Someone who never gives up on you, that loves you at all times. A friend who loves you when you're at your highest high and when you're at your lowest low. Someone who loves you when you're doing well and someone who loves you when you're acting like a fool. They love at all times. They are steadfast. I believe this is why we see all throughout the scriptures, one of the primary characteristics attributed to God is steadfast love. Just one of uh, hundreds, examples, hundreds of examples of this from the Old Testament, Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Steadfast love is the never give up, never run out on you kind of love. Here's another one from Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There's certainly something here about choosing your friends wisely because it's not untrue that bad company corrupts good character. But there's also a provocative phrase in here in the second part of this proverb, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I believe that points directly to the person of Jesus, a friend, the friend that will stick closer than a brother ever will. And when we think about the friendship of Jesus, he not only builds joy by getting face to face with us, but he loves at all times. He persists. He's steadfast at my best and at my worst, which is pretty much the bottom line of this entire series. Even in our sinfulness, even in our suffering, he draws near and he loves us to the end. Being a true friend means I'm in it all the way. I'm not going to leave. 
there is a Hebrew word that cuts to the very heart of that idea. Hesed. A word that means enduring love. It's difficult to capture the complexity and nuance of hesed with a single word in English. So translators often use several words in modern languages. Uh, Lamentations 3.22 is a really good example. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Hesed here in the English Standard Version is rendered steadfast love. In other translations, it's rendered great love, loyal kindness, loving kindness, mercies, and faithful love. Greek also has a word for this kind of love that attaches all Christians to Christ and to each other, agape. And it's just as nuanced and complex as hesed, so much so that it took St. Paul all of 1 Corinthians 13 to fill out the meaning he sought to communicate by it. He didn't write that to be read at weddings, although that's a perfectly fine place. He wrote it to describe agape. Both these words carry the sense of enduring connection that brings life, confidence, security, and so many other good things into a relationship. The kind of intimacy and constancy that's the relational glue that binds us. Attachment is actually the best word scientists can find for what glues friends together and little children to their parents. And this is vitally important because our brains are designed to use our attachments to hone our character. Joyful, secure attachments build strong character. Fearful or weak attachments don't. Character is honed through attachment, hesed relationships that can handle times when things go wrong. A secure Hesed attachment can ride through storms and remain loving. By definition, a performance-based relationship cannot be Hesed because a main characteristic of Hesed love is that it can survive bad performance and bad character. I mean, we don't kick our children out of our home when they misbehave, although the temptation when they're teenagers can be very strong. And isn't it amazing that by the time they get ready to leave for college, we are absolutely ready to have them leave for college? We look at our little baby and we go, <laughs> not so much later on. We don't, we don't just kick them out for misbehavior. No, our, our relationship is too strong. Character in the brain is an expression of an identity that's grown strong in the same way. And as Christians, we want an identity in our brain that looks like Jesus. He perfectly models Hesed and Agape. That brings us to our third and fourth attributes of true friendship. They're together because I think they're so closely linked. A friend hones our character by reminding us of who we are, our group identity, the third nutrient of healthy relational soil. Speaking sometimes hard but helpful truth, healthy correction, 
which is the fourth nutrient. I know this is a mouthful, so here it is again without the parenthetical comments. A friend hones our character by reminding us of who we are, speaking sometimes hard, but helpful truth. Now, group identity and helpful truth are the operative words here. Group identity is who we, who we are to be as followers of Jesus, whose character is being formed in Christ-likeness. Helpful, helpful truth should be self-explanatory, not to be too didactic, but it's truth that's actually helpful, that helps grow us into Christ-likeness. Proverbs 27.6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me illustrate how this looked in the life of Jesus. And this is an illustration that's used in uh, the other half of church. When he began his public ministry, Jesus began by preaching. It says in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. So Jesus came to bring God's kingdom to earth and fill it with citizens, new citizens, who live differently in this present age. Our salvation introduces us into a new kingdom, and we then must learn to live according to its values. Kingdom living requires changes, not just in our behavior, but in our character. Peter heard Jesus proclaim the new kingdom, and he never forgot this powerful truth. Many years later, he wrote, he wrote to Christians in 1 Peter 2, 9, just after the passage we read today. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Chosen. Royal holy, special, incredibly strong words describing a new people inhabiting God's kingdom. That's our identity, chosen, royal, holy, special. Jesus himself lived out of a strong identity, and as a friend, he taught it, modeled it, and constantly reminded his disciples of it even when it required healthy correction. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we went through just before Lent, Jesus delivers a heavy dose of group identity for a chosen, royal, holy, special people. He answers these questions. What kind of people are we? How do we act as members of God's kingdom on earth? We are people. We are a people. Which is how a good identity statement starts. We are a people who take God's commands seriously. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount, we are people who reconcile as quickly as possible, who are careful to obey God in our sexuality, even with glances and thoughts, who remain faithful to our spouses, who keep our word and have no need to make oaths, who love our enemies and pray for them, who seek to be rewarded by God instead of by others, and who forgive others because we have been forgiven so much by the Father. Jesus unveils a beautiful description of what kind of people live in God's kingdom. 
even though our world is still broken and confused, and so are we. He just expounds beautifully on what kind of people we are and how we live. How, how do God's children act when we're angry with someone? How do we respond to financial problems? How do we treat a person when we see a flaw in their character? Jesus, in his friendship towards us, is building a strong identity to help hone our character. He understands that his friends will need to know and often be reminded of who they are. That's what a friend does. They remind us of our identity. Because when we forget, we become like salt that's lost its flavor. And we need healthy correction. So how did Jesus model this in real life? Just, I hope, quickly. Like most of you, I've received both toxic and healthy correction, which are worlds apart in how they feel in our bodies. When correction is delivered through a loving attachment, hesed, which we just talked about, by a mature friend, correction feels painful and loving at the same time. Since Jesus designed the human body, including the brain, he understands better than anyone how to help us grow. And he gave us lots of examples of character formation during the three years he spent with his disciples. For example, in Luke 10, Jesus sends a group of followers out into the surrounding towns to heal and tell everyone that the kingdom of God is near. The disciples returned with joy, saying in Luke 10, 17, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Most of us wouldn't see this as an opportunity to correct their character, but Jesus doesn't miss a beat. Verses 18 through 20, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, it's super important to note that Jesus didn't spoil their joy. He entered right into it. I saw Satan fall from, fall like lightning from heaven. In fact, he validates, he just validates their excitement. He's, he also detects a temptation, though, a potential bump down the road. He sees a deformation in their character. I know this well from my megachurch days, what Randy and I refer to as the big box days. When we're doing the work of the kingdom and Jesus is using us, or so it seems, in powerful ways, it's very tempting to be more excited about amazing results than about our hesed with Christ himself. We become much more excited and often kind of arrogant about, about power than about knowing Christ and resting in and enjoying his steadfast love. Jesus delivers correction here in a way that speaks to every one of us. However, again, Luke 10, 20, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. First and foremost, we are children of God and our father knows our names. We get our joy from his face shining on us, not from the fading glow of success, whatever that looks like. Before anything, Jesus affirms his friendship with his disciples by entering into their joy when they return. 
Healthy correction starts not with correction, but by affirming our hesed attachment, our steadfast love, and entering into the other person's emotional world. We never blindside people because Jesus never, ever blindsides us. When Jesus points out their character flaw, he quickly affirms their, in this case, group identity. We don't rejoice in our authority over spirits or in our productivity, ministry growth, or fame. Instead, we are a people who rejoice that the Father knows our names. He identifies us as his own. That's our source of joy. A subtle correction shows that Jesus' radar is always on and looking for a chance to hone our character because that's what a true friend does. Just one other thing. As the friend of all friends, Jesus loves to the end. Because if there was anyone in Jesus' circle that had the right to cast off or, or turn away, who do you think that would be? Anyone in his circle that he had the right to just cast off? Judas. Exactly right. The one who betrayed him. I don't know if you ever caught this, the last recorded words from Jesus to his betrayer in the moment of betrayal. In Matthew 26, 50, Jesus said to him, to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The one who betrayed him in the moment of his betrayal. He looks him in the eye and calls him friend. This kind of sneaks by you, doesn't it? I believe this is a reminder to us that we can never go too far. We can never sin enough that Jesus would say, nope, I'm done, too far. To Judas, who sold him out, he says, friend, I love you. Do what you came to do. To the very end, Jesus loves. You know, I mean, given enough offenses, given enough backstabbing, given enough times we mistreat someone, every human friend will understandably finally build a wall. Every human friend has a limit, but Jesus Christ is the one friend who has no limit to what he will put up with from you or from me. No limit to the joy he builds in us when we come face to face with him. No limit to the steadfastness of his love for us. No limit to his patience as he seeks to hone our character. Simply no limit to the length that he will go. I couldn't find no limit in your Apple musical. <laughs> We're about to stop wearing our Apple watch when we preach. <laughs> probably would have even been worse if he'd found a song <laughs> called No Limit and started playing it. Wow, that was coming to a really good conclusion. <laughs> Simply no limit to the length he will go. So deeply does he desire our friendship. The only requirement 
The only requirement is we have to keep coming to him and falling into his embrace. That's all. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.